The following is six legendary tales of Georgia. Ghosts, a mysterious fire, unsolved murders, and Georgia's own monster. This is an all-new series from Cashville Media. The Song of the Cell, Old Lawrenceville Jail, Calaboose Alley, Lawrenceville, a ghost story of the haunted historic jail in Lawrenceville, Georgia, haunted by a doomed slave named Alec. Written by Cynthia Rentai of Lawrenceville Ghost Tours, Alec reached across the rough-hewn table and gave his wife's hand a squeeze. His gentle touch softened the weariness around her beautiful eyes and Betsy returned his gaze with a shy smile. Suddenly, they heard a noise, a terrible noise, a sound that made their blood run cold. Alec saw terror spring into Betsy's eyes as their shared gaze turned into a silent prayer. Please, please let the evil pass us by just this one night. The door to the kitchen house burst open and stormed the man who owned them. Colonel James Austin drunk, ranting, belligerent, swearing, accusing. Alex attempts to calm him only enraged Master further. Master grabbed Betsy, proclaiming that it was time to take what belonged to him. Betsy screamed, and before he could stop himself, Alec tore Master off of her and threw him to the floor. As Betsy fled, the full force of Master's fury turned towards Alec, as the drunkard swore revenge. With Master lurching after him, Alec raced out of the kitchen house. If he could just find some place to hide until Master fully succumbed to that demon liquor, Alec would be safe, for Master usually remembered nothing the next day. Master staggered to the main house, grabbed his cavalry sword, and began his search. Finding the kitchen house empty, Master went to Alec's quarters. As Master broke through the door, Alec scrambled up the little ladder to his sleeping loft, pulling it up behind him. Unfortunately, Master able to grab the last rung, pull the ladder down, and unsteadily work his way up, all the while screaming his murderous intent. There was not enough room in the loft to stand, but that did not keep Master from wildly swinging his sword. Alec was trying to dodge the blows, when the sword lodged in a roof timber and Alec was able to grab Master's hand. As Alec struggled for control of the sword, Master lost his balance and fell backwards, crashing onto the floor below. There was a terrible silence. Master was dead, but Alec did not run. On that awful night of October 10, 1848, Telic walked to the Gwinnett County Courthouse and sat on the steps all night long so in the morning he could tell the sheriff what had happened. How is Master, Colonel James Austin, one of the richest men in the county, had been killed but it was in self-defense. Alec is one of only two enslaved men ever to be put on trial in Gwinnett and the judges found him guilty and Alec was sentenced to be hanged. The sheriff brought Alec to the jail, threw him in a cell, and locked the door. Knowing it was a terrible miscarriage of justice, Alec broke off a metal slat, 
from his bed and start to chip his way out of the solid, concrete wall of his cell. Unfortunately, people on the outside could hear it tapping nose and alerted the sheriff. When the sheriff saw what Alec had done, he was enraged. He chained Alec to the floor, chained him by his wrists, chained him by his ankles, and left him there for three days and three nights. Alec begged to be allowed to sit in a more comfortable position, but his pleas were ignored. To pass the time, Alec sang to his beloved, Oh, Betsy, will you meet me, Betsy? Will you meet me, Betsy? Will you meet me in heaven above on November 10, 1848, exactly one month after James Austin was killed, Alec was taken from the jail to the gallows and hanged. But people swear his spirit never left the cell where he was so tightly bound for so long, and in that old jail you can still hear him singing, Betsy, will you meet me in heaven above Lawrenceville? The county seat of Gwinnett is now part of Metro Atlantis Sprawl, just off the charming, historic courthouse square in Lawrenceville, stands a squat, nondescript, concrete building. On the Lawrenceville Ghost Tour, you get to go inside that building the old jail built in 1832, and see the barred doors and the metal beds hanging from the walls. If you look at the back wall of one particular cell, you will see about halfway up an uneven indentation, about a foot and a half across, about two feet tall, and about two inches deep. That indentation is evidence of the progress a good man, a desperate man, made in a futile attempt to escape a horrible injustice. The Jekyll Island Clubhouse was once a place where the most influential families in America spent their time. Among them were the Vanderbilts, Morgans, and Pulitzers. Samuel Spencer, the deceased railroad magnate, is said to be seen at a suite in the annex to enjoy his morning coffee and newspaper. Other ghosts such as the ghosts of former employees who still perform their duties to guests at the hotel. General Law Aspinwall, a founding member of the Jekyll Island Club in Jekyll Island, Ga, was to be its first president. However, he died unexpectedly on September 4, 1886 more than a year before the club would officially open. Letters dated from later years, reveal that certain members had seen the general, hands clasped behind him in military manner, walking the riverfront veranda about dusk on September 4th. Today, that area of the veranda is a sunroom that, interestingly enough, bears the name the Aspenwall Room. Guests at hotel have been surprised to find their coffee sipped and morning paper read. It certainly isn't due to a lack of service or hospitality. Each morning at this exclusive hunt club, Samuel Spencer, president of the Southern Railroad Company, insisted the Wall Street Journal be delivered to his room. For years, it was his ritual to drink a cup of coffee while scanning the paper. 
1906, he was killed instantly in a train accident. For years, club members and hotel guests who occupied Spencer's room have found copies of their newspaper disturbed, moved or folded in their absence. Coffee cups have been mysteriously poured or sipped on when guests returned from the shower or a brief outing. More than one bridegroom has inquired about the mysterious bellman at the hotel as well. It seems this bellman is dressed in a cap and suit reminiscent of a 1920s movie. He delivers freshly pressed suits to bridegrooms and has been seen mostly on the second floor, knocking gently on the guest room door announcing his delivery. One of the most popular haunting tales in the Columbus area is that of Crybaby Bridge, a rural bridge located just north of the Columbus city limits in southern Harris County. The bridge carries several stories of the tragedy that led to the bridge being named as one of the most haunted places in Columbus and the state of Georgia. But experiences on the bridge relate to something paranormal in the area. Crybaby Bridge is located on Whitesville Road north of Columbus. The original bridge where the tragedy was said have happened has been torn down, but there are still stories of odd occurrences happening on the bridge. The woods near Crybaby Bridge offer a gloomy feel even in the daylight. There are three stories that surround the history of the bridge and its haunting. One of the stories goes that a mother drowned her three children in the waters below the bridge, and the wails of her infant can still be heard on nights at the bridge. A second story says that a baby accidentally drowned in the creek below the bridge, and the spirit of that child still haunts the region. A third story goes that a farmer made a pact with the delivery doctor following the birth of his fifth child. The pact said that the doctor would drown the baby in the creek without the wife's knowledge because the farmer would not be able to care for the child due to financial constraints. The spirit of the baby and the mother who is searching for her missing child are said to roam the woods near the bridge to this day. Stories vary of occurrences on or near the bridge. Stories have said that stopping on the bridge under a full moon will reveal paranormal occurrences. Occurrences have included the presence of strange mist and fog near the bridge, cold spots in the air, and the sound of a crying baby coming from the woods. Others who frequent the bridge have told stories of footsteps being heard coming towards them from the woods, and the presence of ghostly figures in the woods nearby. Rumor also has it that if you stop your vehicle on the bridge under the full moon and put it in neutral, the vehicle will shut off and not start back immediately. Crybaby Bridge lies down a rural and dark gravel road in southern Harris County, Georgia. Several paranormal investigators have been to the bridge to search for evidence of the legends that surround the bridge. Some have turned up empty-handed, while some have come back and reported strange occurrences in the area of the bridge. The website ghostvillage.com holds an EVP that was said to have been recorded 
effect on the bridge in August of 2000 to that suggest a paranormal presence at the bridge. Those in the Columbus area are very familiar with the legend of Crybaby Bridge. While some have been bold enough to test their luck on the bridge, others have not. The bridge has become a popular hangout spot for teenagers over the years. While nearly all the states in the lower 48 have some type of story of a crybaby bridge, the story finds its origins in Georgia, just north of Columbus. Crybaby Bridge is located along Whitesville Road in southern Harris County. The roadway turns to gravel slightly north of Columbus and has three bridges after the gravel. Crybaby Bridge is the third bridge along the gravel portion of the roadway. The Altamaha, also called Alti, is a cryptid in the Altamaha River in southern Georgia of North America. In addition to sightings, it has been the subject of many myths and lore during the time of its discovery by the local Tama Native American tribe in the state of Georgia, which predates British. English colonization. The Altamaha is described as having a sturgeon-like body including the bony ridge on its top, front flippers and no back limbs, swimming like a dolphin or porpoise and having the snout of a crocodile. The coloring is said to be gray with a whitish-yellow underbelly. So far, no physical evidence of the Altamaha has been found. It is sometimes shown to be green, so it can camouflage. Reports indicate that it is 20 to 30 feet long. Though some have stated seeing smaller or larger creatures, suggesting that Altamaha ha is not alone, it has reportedly been seen basking itself on the shore, trolling casually along the river, and has even reacted defensively while in the presence of boaters, though no physical evidence of the Altamaha has been found. The tales date back for centuries, with the Indians describing a giant snake-like creature that hissed and bellowed. One of the first non-native reports of the creature was on April 18, 1830 when a correspondent of the Savannah Georgian newspaper reported multiple sightings of a sea monster on the Georgia coast. The primary eyewitness was Captain Delano of the Schooner Eagle, who reported seeing a large creature off of Street, Simon's Island below the mouth of the Altamaha River. His description stated that it was about 70 feet long, its circumference about the size of a barrel, and its head resemble that of an alligator. Five other men on the schooner also reported having seen the monster, as well as several planters on street. Simon's Island. In the 1920s, Timberman riding the river reported sighting a large snake-like water monster, and in 1935, a group of hunters spotted what they called a giant snake, swam through the river. In the 1940s, Boy Scouts reported seeing the creature, as well as to officials from the Reedsville State Prison from the 1950s. In 1969, 
when two brothers were fishing on the Altamaha River at Clark's Bluff. They reported seeing an animal that they first thought was a sturgeon, but quickly changed their mind when they got a better look, stating that it measured about 10 to 12 feet long, with a snout like an alligator and a horizontal tail. They also described the creature as having a triangular ridge along the top of its body, sharp pointed teeth, and being gunmetal gray in color. In the summer of 1980, two men reportedly saw Altamaha stranded on a mud bank near Cathead Creek. They reported that the animal was lying halfway in the water, thrashing and trying to free itself from the bank. They describe it as being dark-colored with rough skin and about 20 feet long. While watching, the creature freed itself, submerged, and disappeared. Later that year, in December 1980, another man reported having seen what he thought was Altamaha and Smith Lake. His description said the animal was 15 to 20 feet long, snake-like with the brown humps that protruded from the water and left behind a wake like that of a speedboat. Another report in the 1980s described by a crab fisherman stated the creature looked like the world's biggest eel. A more recent report in 2000 was by a man pulling a boat up the river near Brunswick who reported seeing something over 20 feet in length and six feet wide break the water. In 2010, an amateur photographer captured a video of something strange swimming in the channel off Fort King George historic site in Darien. Is it possible that this cryptid is a large undiscovered freshwater seal? In 1946, in the Place O'Ellis Hotel was the Winnikoff Hotel. A fire took place at this hotel which took 119 lives. Some people were so desperate to escape they jumped to their deaths, throwing their children before them. The disaster was nicknamed the Titanic on Peachtree. It is rumored a local criminal nicknamed the Candyman set fire to the hotel. Employees in the Alice Hotel report seeing ghosts, missing tools, and for two weeks straight the fire alarm went off at 2.48 m every night, which was right before the deadly fire took place. The Winnikoff Hotel fire of December 7, 1946, was the deadliest hotel fire in American history, killing 119 hotel occupants, including the hotel's original owners, located at 176 Peachtree Street in Atlanta, Georgia. The Winnikoff Hotel was advertised as absolutely fireproof, while the hotel's steel structure was indeed protected against the effects of fire. Its interior finishes were combustible, and the building's exit arrangements consisted of a single stairway serving all 15 floors. All of the hotel's occupants above the fire's origin on the third floor were trapped, and the fire's survivors either were rescued from upper-story windows or jumped into nets held by firemen. A number of victims jumped to their deaths. A photograph of one survivor's fall 
on the 1947 Pulitzer Prize for Photography. The fire, which followed the June 5, 1946, La Salle Hotel fire in Chicago with 61 fatalities, and the June 9, 1946 Canfield Hotel fire in Dubuque, Iowa, with 19 fatalities, spurred significant changes in North American building codes, most significantly requiring multiple protected means of egress and self-closing fire-resistant doors for guest rooms in hotels. The Winnikoff Hotel, now the Ellis Hotel, opened in 1913 as one of the tallest buildings in Atlanta, Georgia. Guest rooms extended from the 3rd to the 15th floors with 15 rooms on a typical floor. Corridors on guest floors were arranged in an age shape with two elevators and the upward flights of stairs opening into the cross halls and opposing downward runs of stairs and verging on a single landing from the legs of the age. The single stairway of non-combustible construction was not enclosed with fire-resistant doors, while the use of multiple stairways was becoming common practice in tall buildings. The Atlanta Building Code of 1911 permitted buildings on lots of less than 5,000 square feet for 160 square meters to have a single stairway. The steel structure was protected by structural clay tile and concrete fireproofing. The hotel was touted in advertisements and on its stationery as absolutely fireproof. Interior partitions, including the walls between corridors and guest rooms, were hollow clay tile covered with plaster. Room doors were 1.5-inch 3.8 centimeters wide with movable transom panels above each door for ventilation between the rooms and the corridors closed by a wood panel of less than 0.5 inches, 1.3 centimeters in thickness. The corridor walls were finished with painted burlap fabric extending up to wainscot height. Guest rooms were finished with as many as seven layers of wallpaper. The hotel had a central fire alarm system manually operated from the front desk and a standpipe with hose racks at each floor. There was no automatic sprinkler system. The Winnikoff Hotel was within two blocks of two Atlanta Fire Rescue Department engine and two ladder companies, one of which was within 30 seconds of the building. The fire's point of origin was on the third floor west hallway where a mattress and chair had been temporarily placed in the corridor, close to the stairway to the fourth floor. One theory suggests that a dropped cigarette may have ignited the mattress or other combustibles in the corridor. The fire was first noticed about 3.15 a.m. by a bellboy who had gone to the fifth floor to help a guest and was trapped. However, the first and only call to the fire department was made at 3.42 a.m. by the night manager, who was reported to have attempted to warn guests by telephone of the fire. The building fire alarm was not sounded, although by that time no escape was possible from the upper floors in any case. 
A survivor recounted being awakened and made aware of the fire by the sound of people screaming. The first engine and ladder companies arrived within 30 seconds of the call. By that time, people were already jumping from windows. Fire department ladders could extend only part way up the building and many guests were rescued in this manner. Other people were rescued via ladders placed horizontally across the alley to an adjoining building. The alley between the Winnikov and the mortgage guarantee building fire spread was initially hampered by the stair arrangement. While the stairs were not closed off by doors, the configuration placed ascending and descending runs round the corner from each other keeping fire and hot gas from quickly ascending the stair. Fire did not spread through the enclosed elevator shafts, nor through the laundry or mail chutes. Open transoms between the rooms and the corridors admitted fresh air for combustion, eventually creating a flu-like effect with the fire climbing to all but the two top floors. Once established in the corridors, the fire fed on the burlap wall coverings and ignited room doors and transoms. Doors and transoms were burned through on all but the 14th and 15th floors. Guests opened windows seeking fresh air and rescue, further enabling the draft of fresh air to the fire. The fire investigation revealed that an open transom was closely associated with the ignition of a given guest room and its contents. Firefighters were hampered, and in some cases injured, by falling bodies. A number of guests tied bedsheets together and tried to descend. Others misjudged the ten-foot-wide alley between the rear of the Winnikoff and the mortgage guarantee building and attempted to jump across. The Atlanta Fire Department mustered 385 firefighters, 22 engine companies, and 11 ladder trucks, four of which were aerial ladder units at the scene. A second alarm was sounded at 3.44 a.m. and a third at 3.49 a.m. With a general alarm, all available units respond, including off-duty personnel at 4.02 a.m. Mutual aid from surrounding departments brought a total of 49 pieces of equipment. Firefighters climbed adjoining buildings to fight the fire and rescue guests, including the 12-story mortgage guarantee building across the 10-foot-3, zero-meters-wide alley, and the six-story Davison Paxson Department store later Macy's on the opposite side of Ellis Street. Of the 300 for guests in the hotel that night, 119 die. About 65 were injured and about 120 were rescued and injured. The hotel's original owners, the Winnikoffs, who lived in an apartment in the hotel, died in the apartment. Thirty to deaths were among those who jumped or who fell while trying to descend ropes made of sheets tight together to reach the ground or two short fire ladders. Among the hotel guests were 40 high school students, 
on a state YMCA of Georgia white club's sponsored trip to Atlanta for a state youth and government legislative program, 30 of whom died. The students had mostly been placed to, to a room at the back of the hotel next to the alley where many of the windows had been covered by louvered shutters for privacy. The occupants of the shuttered rooms were killed on every floor above the fifth floor. Between $3 million and $4 million in claims were brought against the hotel's owners, but insurance awards totaled only about $350,000. The Atlanta Ripper was an unidentified serial killer who is suspected of killing at least 15 Atlanta women between 1909 and 1914. On May 28, 1911, the body of Belle Walker, a cook, was found 25 yards from her home on Garibaldi Street in Atlanta by her sister after she failed to return home from work the previous night. Her throat had been cut by an unknown person, and the crime was reported in the Atlanta Constitution under the headline Negro Woman Killed, No Clue to Slayer. As news of the murders continued to spread, the black population of Atlanta were filled with terror. On July 3rd, after the eighth consecutive killing, the Baltimore Sun reported that news of the murders caused few black women to be on the streets at night and black service workers were refusing to go to work after dark. News reports also noted the similarities of the victims in the case. By the end of 1911, 15 women all black or dark-skinned, all in their early twenties, had been murdered in the same manner. The victims were all described as good-looking and neatly dressed, with many of them having received an education. The murders were all described as having been committed with a knife or other sharp object, with their gruesomeness being of particular note. The murderer would rip tear and mutilate the bodies of the victims after death. One victim, Lena Sharp, was described as having had her head almost severed. The search for the serial killer, named the Atlanta Ripper by the press, found six different suspects, but no convictions were ever made, nor was the crime ever solved. The Ripper may have had as many as 21 victims, but there is no conclusive proof that the murders were carried out by one person. It was reported that the daughter of one of the victims, who was also attacked by an assailant and recovered, caught sight of the attacker, for she described him as a large black man who was powerfully built and neatly dressed. This has been a Cashville Media production. Thank you for listening.